That's a really good question because that is a, that's a big, big challenge, right? Especially if you start your business and grow to something like this, the pace of growth that the company undergoes must be met by the pace of growth of a CEO or and everyone in it. And so that can be challenging when you go from zero to 1 million to 5 million to 100 million. Like the CEO for a $5 million company is very different than the one for a $100 million company, very different for a quarter billion. And so the, the progression of that company takes off and everyone sees the company and you're like, oh, that's great. The progression of that person, and not only in business acumen, but in spiritual and emotional and all the things, the intangibles that you don't think of, that is difficult. It requires very intentional work. Welcome to Energy Builders, a podcast about the geologists, engineers, roughnecks, entrepreneurs, and many more that are building in oil and gas. On this episode, our guest is Brett Chell. Brett is the founder and CEO of Cold Bore Technology, North America's largest and only layer zero digital infrastructure for a connected frac site. On this episode, Brett and I discuss his experience working on, running, and building drilling rigs, how he transitioned from the oil field to capital formation, and how he used his experience to build a quarter of a billion dollar energy tech company. Brett shares some great advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, like beginning as you mean to go. I enjoyed the conversation, and I know you will as well. All right, well, Brett Chell with Cold Bore Technologies. I'm excited to have you here on the Energy Builders podcast today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, so just kind of to kick off, can you tell me like Cold Bore, what, what problem did you set out to solve with your business? So, uh, enterprise communication for frac, essentially. So the, you know, with the digit recent push to digitize, automate and create a lot of efficiency in frac where it was kind of dramatically lagging behind drilling, um, in terms of technology, uh, there's been a bunch of solutions kind of arise over the last five, six years, primarily in software visualization, like to take data from frac or data from wireline or show this or show that or calculate this. And uh, what really was missing was something to centralize and collect the data on all the pads in the US. So that, you know, because what you got going on with a frac, it evolved from a pretty small little operation, one well to multi-well fracs with a ton of companies with control systems all over the place. And so the We've just always done what we've always done uh, problem arose when all those companies individually were firing data to the cloud. And that's where we're at today. And so our product, we just said, hey, look, there needs to be a company that comes out with a layer zero. Put that on pad first. And that layer zero is digital and physical infrastructure. So all the service companies control systems snap onto it. And immediately they get the ability to communicate on site between one another. And the key to it is that we have a timeline inside that layer zero that's tracking the workflow of the pad, independent of everybody, so that they can use it to QC data because it's all based off their own timelines. And once they can QC the data, we arrange it all automatically with software. And so we change a current pad today that's a bunch of companies with a bunch of data to one pad with one set of data that's all QC'd. And then everyone can access that consistent edge, whether it be databases or software companies or the operator. So this is centralization. This is this is organizing. This is bringing it all into one place. And is it real time as well? Or yes, yeah, yes, real no. time, real time, real okay, time, awesome. 
Yeah, and the, the, a good analogy. Are you familiar with uh, a company called Payson on the drilling side? Yes. Yeah, big company. Yeah. All they did is uh, in the 80s, 90s, they threw a box in all the in their um, dog houses. And all it does is aggregate that rig's data and send it out, but also a connection point with a standard protocol that everyone knows they can hit a pace on and get rig data. Right. They don't go directly to all of Patterson rigs, all of PD's rigs, all because there's so much variability. And so everyone just didn't think of that from completions because they were talking to the frack companies because they're so integral. They're like, oh, get it from frack. But there's different frack companies and they don't have everyone else's data. So pace on for completions, similar idea, much more complicated, but similar idea. So were you, was this a problem? I mean, were you a completions engineer? Were you, did you work with a frack service company or did you just see this problem and dive into it? So... Yeah, this is, there's, <laughs> no, I'd never worked in FRAC when I started developing this. Uh, obviously, I've been on FRAC sites pretty much exclusively for the last eight years now since we've been working on it, but uh-huh. uh, I was a drilling guy. Uh, I worked okay. on drilling rigs. It started as a lease hand and worked my way up to a driller from like 2000 nice. to 2008. Okay, well, let's back up then. Let's let's kind of go back to the beginning. Let's talk about, um, you know, uh, let, let's go all the way to the beginning, like, Think about your childhood. Were you, were you a good student and where'd you grow up? What part of the world are you from? Uh, let's dive in there. Cool. Yeah, fun. So from Canada, uh, Calgary, Alberta, originally live in Houston now. Uh, not a great student. Uh, I was, I have really bad ADHD. Uh, I love talking. I was never like a bad kid. Like I never was like uh, doing drugs or lighting anything on fire. I just wouldn't <laughs> shut up. Right. <laughs> so talk, 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 talk. And I have to be high engagement, like interactions. And I'm an artist, uh, consequently now professional artist. I also sell and paint and draw. So oh, just nice. vary that side of the brain, um, gotcha. interacting and high stimulus. And so, but way high. And so like teachers couldn't deal with it. Uh, between kindergarten and grade three, I was in French immersion. There was only eight schools. I'd been expelled seven times, uh, <laughs> which... To me, it's kind of crazy because you think about like expelling a kid in grade one, right. like that's a teacher problem. Now that I'm an adult, I'm like, you're the problem, not that right. kid that talks, figure out how to teach him. Uh-huh. But this was the eighties. So they're like, do this and sit at the desk and shut up or you're out. Right. Uh, and so it was like, rinse, repeat, new school, new school, new school. And then finally the last school, they couldn't kick me out anywhere else because the last one in the city. And uh, in grade four, the grade four teacher's solution, this is a true story, it's in, in my book I'm writing, uh, he couldn't handle it, so he put me behind the piano, and then he cut the top off of a fridge box, like when you buy a fridge, cardboard box, and he put it over my desk every day when I went to school. So all of grade four, I sat in a fridge box in the corner, didn't really hear anything, just drew. And, wow. uh that, was that, wouldn't, no fly to, that wouldn't fly today either. <laughs> no, my mom came to school and found out that one day that she's asking for me out of the blue. And that's how they found out. And there was a big kerfuffle. And, but yeah, so no, school wasn't great. <laughs> gotcha. No, I hear, I hear you. So it sounds like you were more like a, a, a learn by doing kind of guy. Is that right? Yeah, very much yeah. just figure it out, intuitive type person rather than academic. Gotcha. So do you remember, I mean, were you entrepreneurial at a young age? Like, were you like hawking like baseball cards to other kids or anything like that? Or did you have a lemonade stand or was there any hint that you would start your own business one day? I, I wish I could say that because I love those guys that have that story. They're like, I was making a hundred bucks. No, 
I would, I would trade, I was into cards and all that shit and I would do the old lemonade stand, but I'd immediately take my four bucks and go spend it on candy. Like I wasn't, no one, I had no financial literacy whatsoever. That didn't come until like 30. Right, right. Yeah, no, I spun up one, uh, when I was a kid, a, a lemonade stand so we could get the Sega Genesis, right? Like got to sell enough lemonade yeah. so I can go, go make that purchase and get, get the video games going in the house. So, uh, I hear you. Yeah. I'd earn it and spend it. So, um, so no early entrepreneurial stories, but did you have anyone in your life, like uh, any relatives that were entrepreneurial or did this, uh, did you see examples of that as a way to, to move forward in life as, as a career? Yeah. Um, actually, funny enough, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, there's not, I don't, I can't think of anyone in my family that has a job. Uh, so my mom, uh, owned a modeling agency. She was an entrepreneur. My dad, always entrepreneur, both my grandparents, uh, butcher and a florist, um, aunties and uncles all own their own businesses, investment bankers and stuff. I don't know. I don't know if it's just like, literally there's no one in our family that had a job. Yeah. So everybody's, everybody's got some kind of, uh, some kind of business that they operate so that you just grew up seeing that all around you. Yeah, that was just kind of normal. We, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, to be honest, I'm completely and 100% unemployable. Uh, (laughs) I just, I just run on my own schedule. Uh, Yeah, I run on my own schedule. That's just like, I don't, I don't do well with authority. Every personality test or like Roche, like all these tests you can do with these different, every single one of them, my authority uh, is at zero. Uh, and they're like, you're extre- so extreme. It's like, you do not listen to authority and you will always do what you want. Uh, it, it's very clear that I should have my own business. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So, so, um, so you kind of saw that everywhere. I mean, how then did you, how did you end up in oil and gas? You mentioned earlier that you were at, were on the drilling side of things. So how'd you roll into the oil and gas industry? I, uh, so I dropped out of grade, well, I kind of half-assed finished grade 12, half-assed just decided to quit and leave. I didn't have enough credits. Um, uh, so then I went to art school. I did get into Emily Carr Art School, which is a pretty good art school in Canada. Um, did that and then decided pretty quick that I saw my friends making 100 grand a year. Uh, so I had a brother-in-law that worked on the drilling rigs and he said, this is how you do it. And he got me a job and I went out and started washing rigs and then... There you go. Eight years later, I was out there still. <laughs> Seven. Yeah, you said you worked your way up. Were, what'd you work all the way up to? Driller? Were you running running the, the drilling rig? Yeah, that's where I quit. Was that driller? Yeah. So how many years was that in the, in the field? Uh, about six and a half, seven. I mean, I field actual field work was about four and a half, five years. And then we got recruited to go to a, we were the second guy, second and third guys at a company called extreme coil drilling. Um, when they set that company up, they hired Kevin, my brother and I to come build their three and 400 rigs in the yard. And so we built those coil top drive hybrids and the three and four hundreds, and then sent them down to Poza Rica. And then ultimately a bunch of them went over to Saudi. Awesome. Awesome. So that's, so you got some experience there, like actually you were running the rig, but then you actually got to the point where you're helping design and, and build these rigs. Is that what, am I understanding that right? Yeah. I didn't do any designing on extreme. I just was in the yard building. And so I was, yeah, we were very hands-on with control systems, uh, you know, and fabrication, stuff like that. 
What's the, uh, I mean, that's kind of a different set of skills, right? I guess, what's that like going from like running the things to actually building the things? It, you're, you know, it's funny you say that because it's very, I still think back to a few of the stories like, uh, this was like in the early 2000s. So it's maybe still a little more cowboy than today, but uh, yeah, they just are like, Oh, we'll bring the guys in that work for us to come build rigs when it's slow. And so we would fabricate, we'd weld. I never welded before. You just learn when you get out there and uh, nothing right. on critical stuff, but you'd weld stuff together, put it together parts that don't, that aren't under load. And uh -huh. then, or like electrical stuff. I remember putting capacitors in and installing them and wiring them up and the electrician would come around. There was electricians out there, but we're just, they're like, oh, put this in, put that in. And then I'm throwing it in. He's like, hey, 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 don't put a wrench by that. Those things can hold a charge that'll kill you for like three years. I'm like, <laughs> what? Okay. I didn't know well, that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's just the way of the patch. You'd fix everything on those rigs when they're in the field. Like when they right. break, the crew fixes everything. And so right. you tear diesel motors apart. You tear top drives and injectors apart. You just have to do it. Okay, so you're so you're working on the rig, then it gets slow. So you're helping build rigs, um, working in like you said, fabricating. What's yeah. next on on your on your uh, on your journey to ultimately cold bore technologies? Uh, so yeah, then at that point I was like, yeah, I was only supposed to be out here to earn a little money, and I want to do my own thing. And so I, you know, I was talking to some mentors and figuring which you know, asking people what's the fastest way, you know, roadblocks and all that stuff. And I got pretty consistently, I got feedback that if you're going to go do something that the scale that you're talking about, which is cold war, which is enterprise communication for the entire industry, uh, that's pretty big company. You're going to run into some, you're going to have to do some pretty sophisticated financing. And so with a tech company that scales that fast, it's not going to be able to be bootstrapped. You can't afford to do it. You have to have shareholders. You better go learn. You better get a street degree in finance uh, before you start that company. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you won't be able to finance it or you'll lose it. And so I did that. I went and worked for um, a v kind of like they were a blend of a VC and private equity firm along with an accelerator that would build tech companies. And so there I learned to do step financing, you know, what, how PE works, when VC comes in, the differences Canada and the US, uh, how to fund startups and what to watch out for and all that shit. So I did that for five years and then, and then I started Cold War after. Was this in, were you based at, was this group based out of Canada? Calgary and California, Venice Beach, actually. Okay. So what was that like? And how did you, did you just start knocking on doors? Did you have a connection there? Did you um, just look for a firm that you wanted to work with and then just get a, find a way in? What was the, what was the process there? Yeah, I had a connection there, a family member that uh, was uh, running one of those. And so they said, if you want to learn finance and come in, come work here, start at the bottom. Uh, you're going to be a cold caller. And we'll teach, just sit in the meetings and you can listen and learn. Um, and so that was it. I just set, started cold calling initially and just setting up meetings, stuff like that for other people. And then eventually led to, you know, getting on the board of some, or getting on the founding group of a couple of these tech companies that we set up. And then as a founder, I uh, was raising money for them myself and then just kind of started small, five, two, 250, 500, and then started raising more money and was part of these companies and building them and figuring out the narratives that you had to create and craft to be able to, you know, interest people to gain money and then money to build product and product to sell and sell to re-raise and, you know, the whole cycle of momentum that you have to keep going. Just kind of learn that over the, organically. Gotcha. And so did you have a time frame when you joined there? Were you thinking like, 
I'm going to put in five years here and then it's going to be ready for cold bore? Or were you thinking, were you looking at the markets and getting your reps in there and just looking for the right timing that you thought? What what kind of led you to like, well, I mean, was there planning uh, behind your years there? Or was it just once you were, what what metrics were you looking at that told you now's the time to go out on my own and launch cold bore? Yeah, that that was, it was just like, I just knew enough people told me, you're not, you're, you don't even know what you don't know yet, right? So uh-huh. you have a very low possibility of successfully starting a business. If you don't go get involved with a, either a startup that's going to try it, this was an ideal situation because it was an accelerator slash PE shop that would handle a lot of this work for startups to help them mitigate that risk and grow. So uh-huh. we'd have four or five of them going on at once. And you just get hyper exposure to this and you just kind of throw yourself into it. And so it was like, I don't really have a plan because I don't know what I don't know. So I don't even know what I'm looking for. Uh, and then you just go in there and, and at some point an opportunity arises and you kind of, after four or five years, you're like, I'm ready. I'm just going to go take a jump here. And you got to just, at some point you just got to do it. And so that, that day just popped up about five years in. So, so working at this before we jump ahead, but working in this kind of hybrid, uh, finance company you're talking about, um, you talked about starting with cold calling and then, you know, working your way up. Were you also able, I mean, it sounds like that this, with this accelerator that the, the, the partners and the, and the employees there at the firm were very active in these startups, uh, uh, incubating them in house. I mean, were you guys actually rolling up your sleeves and getting into the day to day with these, with these companies and help standing them up? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So it was very much like, uh, subject matter experts would have a great idea. Um, you know, scientists or specialists of some industry, but they'd never really built a business before. So they don't know how to do, they don't know, understand the capital markets. They don't understand structuring. They don't understand operations. They don't, they're just, this is their vertical. They're really good at right. those type of people we would find. And then we were the infrastructure to get them started, right? Help them with legal, get the company set up, figure out the narratives, how to pitch, how to raise what you would need. One, five, 10 strategic, or are you a two fifty five hundred run cash flow, right? Uh, right. Define product, define all that stuff. So, yeah, it was very, very hands-on. That's the only reason why I could do it without having to go to school first to get certified to raise money or work in the financial markets is because technically I was a founder of building these companies. So you can just do, you can be part of all of it. Right. So was this firm, was it a generalist firm? Were you seeing, were you seeing guys in every different industry or was it more, what was the focus there? It was technology, um, but opportunistic in technology. Uh, you know, we did one where we took on a project of, we sent a Volkswagen bust size video camera, uh, up to the ISS and installed it on the Russian module to provide video back for all the ministries in different countries. So it was a $250 million worth of money we raised over five years and ended up building it from zero to a couple hundred employees. And we were launching cameras on rockets. Uh, so we kind of did the whole thing. Um, and then another one was just a pure tech play, uh, on your, on your phone 10 years ago, we were working with software that could take a picture of anything in your house or outside a car, shoes, table. It would use image recognition to identify it. And then it would bring it up on all the sites where you could buy it. So just picture of that hat you're wearing and it would immediately take you to purchase online. Uh, but that was like 10 years ago. So way before that stuff existed. So it was right. all over the place. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
oh, what's the guy's name? The founder of Reddit. Um, oh. I can't think of his name. Um, he's married to one of the Williams tennis sisters. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Okay, so... Um, so you got a lot of experience uh, at this finance company. You got to help stand up businesses. You're seeing technology products um, from, like you said, something like a literal moonshot <laughs> to like, uh, you know, consumer products uh, over the phone, right? like over a smartphone. So you get your reps in, you know, okay, I'm ready to go and launch cold bore. What's number one step for doing that? Uh, so we started off, we got to come up with a concept, bring some partners in. This might be my biggest advice. If I have some at this podcast, Yeah. bring partners in to go who your experts are and who the group is, that's going to do it. And then you got to start raising money to get, to get rolling. Uh, so one of the biggest mistakes I made is I was young and I had no idea. Um, but I, you know, we've met these guys that were like 50 or so at the time. And I was like 30. And uh, they just were like 55, maybe even they're like, oh, we're scientists, we're experts, we've done this, we've done that. And I don't know shit. So I don't know how to check them. I don't know anything. I'm just like, oh, great. Yeah. You know, adults that know what they're doing. This is going to be easy. <laughs> I'll just like... And uh, so those guys stuck around for about a month after I after we divvied up a quarter, a quarter, a quarter of all the shares in the company. And uh, they still own those shares today in a quarter billion dollar company. And I haven't seen them in eight years. Uh, so mm. there's the first lesson. Yeah. Okay. So uh, looking back, I mean, you, you can see that now. You saw all like what were looking back at the time you didn't see were like red flags. What were the red flags? Uh, I mean... It's, I don't know if it's really hard to tell red flags on people right away, right? You, you, people can present themselves really well. And uh, so I would just suggest there's mechanisms. And the way you do it is you just don't issue stock to anybody um, that doesn't come with a golden handcuff as an option. Um, option based on a performance-based option with a time period of three years and a, th a third, a third, a third vesting. And if you don't get these, you get fired. You don't get the other third, a third. Yeah. And so that's the way to properly set it up. Then you don't have to try to, you know, guess via have a crystal ball to know if they're going to stick around and gut it out. Because honestly, there's a lot of smart people. Those guys were brilliant scientists, but they just had other interests. They were invested in it. Like they, they all left when the industry turned down and we went basically ran out of money one year in. Mm. And they're like, oh, well, good try. And I'm like, uh, good try. I raised all the money from like everyone I know. You guys didn't do shit. Right. Like, this, I was like, uh oh, I put myself in a bad spot here. So, right. So yeah, the incentives weren't aligned. The incentives weren't aligned. No. Yeah. No, they had zero money in and they had all, they got all a quarter of the company and I went and raised all the money for people that I knew. So it was my reputational risk and family's money risk and friends like oil and gas guys, 25,000 bucks at a time. Right. Everyone. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's good advice. That's good advice. So, so you, uh, you have these partners. Uh, that you start the business with and what's some of the like you said you you had to finance the business you had a a, a big this this business is not just something you're gonna start out of your out of your uh, basement and and be um, you know slow rolling you're needing to raise a significant amount of capital and start building software as well as hardware right so like mm -hmm. um, what's some of the challenges there on did, did people believe in this when you told them the idea? Were they very skeptical? Um, 
what, what were what were some of the the, the stories there, kind mm-hmm. of standing the thing up? Uh, yeah, well, like the first thing is that I wish I, you know, that I would impart if anyone listens to this that you want to understand is do you really want to get into a long cycle, um, heavy financial burden, heavily burdened company that's going to take a lot of raising and private equity and VC and before it ever cash flows? Like, do you want to get into that? Because you, there's a big difference between that business. And if you just take those out and you don't understand, you're just like, oh, I want to make a billion dollar company. You don't, you don't know what you don't know. You're like, okay, that, that, let's go for the big one. But, or do you want to just start a company that cash flows right away? Like a type of business where you can make a hundred grand your first month or year. And then that year two, you can make two, three million. It might not be ever be a billion, but you don't have no shareholders. And right. I look at that now, I'm like 5 million a year in revenue is huge if you have no shareholders. Yeah. Right. Right. Whereas like now I'm 10 years in and I'm happy we went the way we did. Like you make the best of it. But I look at it now and I'm like the amount of work and loss of sleep and raising $50 million over the course of eight years and four market cycles and two different governments that are against oil and gas and navigating all this and boards and shareholders. And it that's a whole different ballgame. And the CEO is in until the end. Like right. you're all, you're at risk until the exit. It is, it take years off your life. So think about which model you want. That's no, my that's, first one. That's, that's great advice. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I think you bring up a good point. Like, are you like looking at, are you wanting to build a billion dollar company or are you wanting to build a company that cash flows as quick as possible? Maybe you're a solopreneur, maybe you're just working with contractors. Um, thinking about that, a lot of people just idolize entrepreneurship and say, you know, I started my own business. It's great. I work for myself, but you're kind of highlighting some of the, um, well, pluses, but also some minuses. So is there any more you can dig in there? I mean, like you kind of mentioned some there, like you're not just working for for yourself. Um, you mentioned governmental pressure, right? So regulatory, you mentioned your shareholders, um, you mentioned partners, uh, earlier. Can you break down a little bit more on each of those? Like, give us a story from the regulatory environment that really challenged you. Yeah, it's more like the political environment that changed so much, right? So okay. we started 10 years ago um, and it flopped over. I mean, we all know what's happened in the last 10 years. <clears throat> There's a big, big shift in our culture and our how the public perceives energy. So right in our space, especially in Canada, right? Um, it's just turned to where it's like, oh, that's bad. It's negative. And the banks have kind of abandoned it, right? They're like, oh, we can't even fund this anymore. We've got to go fund windmills and stuff. Uh, right. And so, you know, you don't account for that when you start. So I'm saying is like, if you're going to look at, I want to go to a billion and I want to build a big company with a couple hundred employees and I, I want that exit. Um, I'm just like to paint that picture that it's a 10 year cycle and the amount of things that can happen in a 10 year cycle you just got to be really prepared. It's not like had someone sat me down and put all this knowledge in my head back then, would you choose to still go that route? I doubt it. I right. doubt it. Cause right. it's like, and, and now when you sell this company for 2 billion and you get your 10, 20% check back, probably your tune will change again, right? You're on right. your yacht <laughs> and you're like, no, I'm glad I did that. Right. But <laughs> there's a period in between where you're like, would have been nice just to make 5 million, 10 million a year for 10 years and then just go live on an island somewhere. Right. What's that have to be like? Uh, 
your mental state when you're talking about working with, you know, you've got employees that you're responsible for, you've got your shareholders. So how do you manage to uh, present an even keel emotional state to everybody there? Are you, I mean, are you, are you raging, you know, in the closet at home or in the shower and then you have to put on a nice face or what, what's, what's helped you in, 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 uh, you know, kind of in the ups and downs of all, like you mentioned, these different, uh, outside influences. That's a really good question. Cause that is a, that's a big, big challenge, right? Um, especially if you start your business and grow to something like this, the pace of growth that the company that the company undergoes must be met by the pace of growth of a CEO or and everyone in it. And so that can be challenging when you go from zero to 1 million to 5 million to 100 million. Like the CEO for a $5 million company is very different than the one for a $100 million company. Very different for a quarter billion. And so the, the progression of that company takes off and everyone sees the company and you're like, oh, that's great. The progression of that person and not only in business acumen, but in spiritual and emotional mm. and all the things, the intangibles that you don't think of, that is difficult. It requires very, like it requires very intentional work. Right. And so I didn't know that for the first three to five years, mm. I was just like, work, 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 busy, do, 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 do. And you do, you end up hyper reactive. You're blowing up on people. You're, you're not a good leader, right? You're kind of just like, you're thinking that if I work so hard and I show them that I can, especially in oil and gas background, if I just show them I work 20 hours a day and I can, I'm a man, uh, that's good culture. Like, let's go. Right. And everyone's like, no, we don't do that. That's crazy. I have a family. I have other priorities. Uh, and so eventually you know, I've done now over the last two years by necessity, I've had to again, and now I just really enjoy it. A lot of coaching, a lot. Um, spiritual coaching, mental coaching, business coaching, and honestly, the spiritual and emotional coaching and all that, being able to get vulnerable, being able to have dis difficult discussions with strangers, being able to open up to people and receive love or whatever it is, all these things that seem like they're not business related are very important to evolve as a human mm -hmm. because the amount of pressure you get put under in a position like this and people always asking and there's not you know, it's pretty lonely at the top is a very real thing. Like no one ever says, Hey, time for your performance review. You did a great job. Right. Uh, here's one. You're, you're really good. You did all this. It's amazing. No one, it's just people saying, here's what I want. Here's what I need. And then the board who's your boss comes in and says, look at this, that can be better. This can be better. Go do this. And they don't mean to be negative, but they're not there to be your like cheerleading squad. Right. 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 So it, so it is absolutely critical. Just so, coaching. yeah. And how did you, did you, was that something you realized internally that you, th that you had to seek out or did you have someone step in and be like, Brett, bro, uh, you need to, or did, was it a combination of both? I was both. It was both. Uh, when your company grows and you start to get you, the need, you start hiring more sophisticated people, better and better people. And, and people inside your company get more sophisticated, better and better and better, and everything starts to progress. Right. That's when it really starts to show off. Because if you're five people and you're a small company and you're in the boardroom and something goes wrong and you're a young CEO and you blow up at five people, they kind of just go like, well, whatever. Uh, you hire in a couple more people that were executive level at a big, you know, multinational, and they come in and you blow up at them. They're like, I'm not, I'm not here for that. Right. I'm not doing that. Uh -huh. So, and then you go, oh shit. You're like, I just look like a complete idiot. And if I've been doing that the whole time, 
Right. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you just know you're out of place quickly. Right. Um, and what's yeah. that been like? Speak to, like you mentioned that, like you, you've got your, your employees that are there with you, they're growing, they're leveling up, but then you start to hire in, maybe even some of your employees outgrow you technically. Um, you know, what's that like working with someone who's, you know, you're having to wear a bunch of hats, right? You're, but mm-hmm. you're also working with highly specialized, trained employees. What's that like to know, like, this person, I know they are because I hired them for this purpose, are just A plus at this, and I'm not on that specific thing. What's that like? What's that dichotomy like um, working through those? You know, obviously, you've got to steer the ship. You've got to lead them, but they're also the, the expert in their area. So what's that like? Yeah, I I imagine there's a couple elements to that. One of them would probably be that when you're like I have a bunch of these people, they're so smart at what they do, mm-hmm. and like they, I will never know what they know in that space. So if you have a, any insecurities around that, I can see that being a problem. Like you have a tough time hiring people smarter than you. Luckily, just inherently, naturally, I don't have any insecurity around that, and so it's great. I'm like pull that person in, like, look how capable they are. That's right. what we need. Um, the, where the challenge then comes in on the backside of that is it can be hard to understand or to figure out how to manage that and lead that person to, you know, properly give them leadership in their area. And if, cause you're not, you don't know, you know, like a developer, like when I first started hiring software developers, that was a nightmare. I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know how to use email. <laughs> right. like, how do I tell this person what to do? Right. Right. But you you learn, you learn pretty quickly over time that the, your value is in structuring the path and guiding the purpose and being the general, the generalist that says, I'm going out in the world and I'm figuring out that we're still solving the right problem and that customers are asking for this. And I'm generally pulling together the sales strategy with the tech strategy, with all this, and they can respect you for that. And then you respect them for this. And eventually you have to just, I mean, the best way I found to know that you've got the right people when you don't understand what job they do is to actually hire a third party first. Mm. So like if I need software developed, don't try hiring developers before you've done that. Just pay a third party to develop software. Cause then you can find, you can copy their processes, copy their, you get to understand their mannerisms, the way they work. And then you even get introduced to their network and you start finding people like you'll meet someone. It's like, oh, I'm looking for a new job you already know, why don't you come start building our software team? Right. And then you kind of, you know, dip your toe before you try to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like a Steve Jobs quote, right? It's like the best artists borrow or best artists steal, right? There's a lot of examples out there of how to do things that you can learn from others. No, that's great. That's great advice right there too. Um, So, so we talked about the 10 year journey and just like knowing what you're getting into when you're building. So that's something you experienced right away. Um, but what, how long did it take you to iterate on your first product, your first cold bore technology offering to customers? So we started as a drilling tool, uh, cause I was a drilling guy. We were developing, uh, we wanted to increase the bit rate between the rig and the, the, the drill bit. And so we started developing acoustic technology to communicate between those two. That's some of the original founders that I found. They were acoustic scientists. Okay. And that was their job. They're going to do that. And I'm the oil and gas guy. And then, so we raised 3 million bucks and started developing it. And we were out on location testing. And then 2015 happened. And it was the big downturn. Right. And drilling just went away. 
like overnight, no more drilling. And uh, I'm like, uh oh, that was right when we were out of money too for the first little bit. Right. And so that's when everyone was like, well, we quit, we quit, we're out. Uh, I had one guy, Blair, that stayed with me, still my partner, CFO, to his credit, great guy, stuck stuck around. Um, but everybody else bailed. And at that point, we had to just make a decision. It's like, well, I'm like, I don't think drilling's coming back in any capacity anytime soon. Uh-huh. And we had realized we probably got in over our head with this tool. Um, so it was kind of serendipitous timing. And I just said, you know what, that's it. We're pivoting, take the software out of that thing, scrap all the hardware. Let's go to completions. Cause I know that in fracking that they have all these wells that they'll have to frack to maintain licenses. So there will be some level of activity was the idea there. At least there's a hope. So drilling dead fracking has to keep fracking at some rate, right? Let's go figure out if we can turn all of this mess into anything over there. And so that was the first jump, got on a frack site, found out that they were using balls, but it doesn't matter. There's a solution where we could use our acoustic software to hear something valuable. Uh-huh. And so we did put it on there and we started listening to all the downhole stuff that was going on during a frack and telling them what was happening with ball drop frack. And I'm like, great, there's a new application. And we re-raised a couple million bucks on, uh, kept going on that. And that's what led to the understanding. I'm like, on that location, pulling a quarter terabyte a day of day out of this hole. And I started asking around uh, 10 years ago or eight years ago, I'm like, hey, where's your like pace on? Um, I got right. all this data, you're gonna want it. I got it. where do you put all the, everyone else's data? And they're like, I don't know, like frack van. Right. And I was like, well, no, like not who's the most, like the big service out here. Like where does the oil company get their data and everyone else's in the same spot? Like they and get it, it, they get it 30 days later when this is done. <laughs> kind of, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. a little bit of it all over the place. Right. And that was it. So that was like, that was the genesis. I'm like, oh, Blair, there's a bigger opportunity out here. This acoustic thing, it'll work a little bit. It's a pretty small market, but this, uh, whatever this is, ended up being SmartPad and Layer Zero. That is enterprise communication for frack. That's huge. Uh, and then all it was left to do was way underestimate the amount of money and time it would take to develop. So, <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit. I think some things I'm pulling out here, Brett, is like, um, it sounds like you're very curious, um, since a young age, you've been interested in learning by doing you guys, you knew you wanted to build a big company, but you also, yeah. you and your partner that stuck with you you guys weren't going to ride the the ship down as it sank. Like you're like, how do we button this thing up and pivot? Uh, what kind of mindset um, does that take? Uh, I think it takes like a, a willingness to jettison the bad stuff, but also like, uh, is it just curios- curiosity? Or is it just you guys being hungry and like a drive to make this work? Was it uh, happenstance that you guys saw that? What do you, what do you think's going on there? What's a takeaway for, like, like I said, anyone who's listening, who's thinking about starting a business, what's, what do you think was going on there that enabled you guys to pivot? Uh, so the most important thing, um, if someone, if you're going to be the leader of a company that's going to take this path and try to, it's, it's any business too, this is broadly applicable, uh, is the ability to make decisions with very little information. So, Ben Horowitz's book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he talks about this. Um, Less than 10% of information is what CEOs generally have on a daily basis when they're making decisions that could affect the whole company. 
So constantly comfortable making decisions with less than 10% of the information you need and then just sticking with it and going. And then if it's not right, you switch. New decision, switch, go. And so first thing is the ability to make decisions without all the information. So if you're an engineer or you're an engineering type or you really want to figure things out, do not start a company. Very, very low chance it'll be successful. Uh, go work for someone, right? Um, and then the other thing is just, I think people grossly, and I, me included, grossly underestimate the level of grit it will take to be a successful company. Um, everyone's always worried about their idea, IP, patents, all that stuff. Doesn't matter. I honestly could care less about your idea. It, a million ideas have died on the floor. Uh, it's all about the ability to execute and ability to execute simply comes from staying in it long enough. Um, it literally comes down to grit and the ability to make decisions quickly. Hmm. How important is it, like you said, IP, the trademark, all that, like how important is it to iterate and get that first product or get the next uh, update issued? Is that tantamount? Is that everything? It really depends on what you're doing. Um, if you're, you know, if you're doing something like you're developing a one product that has a lot of IP application, like you're going to develop this one lock that goes on something that prevents a multinational company from doing what they do, then IP is very important because you're just going to take that patent, you're going to leverage it, and you're going to sell it. Uh, in, in a company like ours, where it's you know, this broad application of deploying enterprise communication into the market, there's a lot of IP around it, a lot of IP around how we track stuff, around how we connect things, around software, around all this. But honestly, it is the moat to keeping people out is not to get in IP battles with software companies because software IP around software is almost impossible to defend because when you go to discovery, you're like, hey, you're doing what we do. It's like, let me see your code. And they're like, no, that's proprietary. It's like, okay, so how, you know, and the code is one line different and now all of a sudden you got a problem. So you, everyone thinks like you want there to be an IP block because that's lazy and it's easy. But really you just figure out a business that has couple things that are different. This, this business has extreme difficulty in execution because it's software, there's a hardware element, and there's a service element. So you've got to bring oilfield services people together with software developers. You can imagine how that goes in the boardroom. <laughs> yeah, the, so you, you've got to have a story there. So what, like, th that's a good point. Like you're, you're talking about bringing three very different uh, disciplines together. So the, how, how, there's got to be a story around that, like one of the challenges you faced in doing that and probably a continuous, it's probably a continuous challenge. Um, is there anything you can share there? For sure. Yeah, it's a continuous challenge. Always a story around it is that like when I was doing this and, and starting and funding and refunding and going and going, it's been seven years worth of iterating and going and we've got another two or three before it's all the way in this market. So it's a very long cycle. I chose a very difficult, complex deployment all these things all the way along. Everybody said, you know, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. You're great. We love the passion. We love the idea. This industry does need standardized communication, 100%, but shouldn't do that. That's too hard. Just go SaaS, develop the analytics and sell that. You can make a ton of money doing that. Now there's truth to that. It would have been a lot easier to just make the visualization of all this messed up data and go. There's other companies that did have been very successful, very big, but there's going to be a lot of competition up there now. There's no real barrier to entry because you just get in, you develop software and you compete. This one, the way I looked at it now, for better or worse, we'll find out when I get to the end. I said, if we stick on this and we are successful in finding out how to connect everybody physically, 
own the digital platform that is at the base of all their communication and then develop visualizations for them to interact. So software, hardware, and service. Uh, this will be extremely difficult to remove. It's like Amazon being put in, in as the platform for e-commerce. You could develop another platform, but there's no buyers and sellers on it. There's no, the, the money it takes to get in there, like it doesn't matter. Nobody is displacing Amazon, but anyone can displace a software ERP system that does some calculating of your, your billing, right? Right, And so you just got to look and be aware. So like the, when we went at this, everybody wanted me investors. Everybody said, don't do that. It's too hard. Uh, get to the software side, ditch all the people, ditch all the hardware. And so that I knew it and everyone else knew it. It was blending people and software and specifically OFS and development together. OFS people are hard assets. Like their culture is like grind yourself to death and prove yourself to become, it's almost like in like initiation in college constantly for 10 years when you're out there. <laughs> right. and, and then software typically more like the intellectuals, right? right. They're a little softer. They're a little more, you know, they're sensitive. So put those two together and try to build a company. It, it can be hard, but it can be managed. It just takes a lot of leadership. Right. And how hard was it to tie? How many different, I mean, tying these different sources of data together? I mean, is there a handful? Are there 10 different? Is there a standard among, you know, wireline versus um, X other service provider? Are there a hundred different uh, data types coming in? Like, give us an idea there. Is it, is it multitudes or is it handfuls or, or what? Yeah, so this is the trick that everyone got hung up on. Um, so there's, I don't know, five to 10 major frack companies, uh, five to 15 major wireline companies. There's uh, water, sand, offset well, uh, the operators control systems and the, OS, the company men that run them. And then every time you, so you take that, first of all, there's your amount of variables that could be possible. And then you pick a pad and there's multiple wells. So every time you go one to four or six or 18 wells, that's one to four, six or 18 different timelines that any one of those variable combinations could be on. And then every oil company or frack company that is expecting to interact on that pad may not be interacting on the other pad because they switched the service combination out there. And now it's a completely different service combination, but on the same operation where one oil company or one frack company is trying to get metrics across their different operations. So, it's one of those things, it's like a combination lock. I don't know what the number is and different variabilities, but it's infinite and, uh, or nearly infinite. And so where everybody stumbled on or where no one wanted to attack this was looking at that number and being like, oh, plus you got all these big companies that want to do their own thing. They don't want you in there interfering. The culture is very like anti tech, like anti come in and touch my stuff. And so we just, that was the one thing we figured out. We're like, we cannot go in as a company to standardize all this and expect to change any, all these people to do one thing, which is how you would get standardization. So we built a thing that goes below layer zero and it slides under first. And then this whole pie of complexity lays on top of it and it gets easily adopted into there because there's no disturbance to this whole commercial operation in the entire industry. It just lays on top. You guys just take just all that off. in, gobble it all up and, make it come out neat, nice and clean. Um, who was, who was pushing as far as your customers, who was pushing adoption of this? Were the operators 
or were frat companies? I mean, where did you see that initial push for adoption? No one. <laughs> you had to will your way in? Yep. This was very much like uh, we just figured, think we figured something out and this is a brilliant idea. We should build it. And uh, it's to this, to the, up until the last year, very much like, hey, the way we do things is wrong. We shouldn't do it that way. We've all got control systems, blah, blah, blah. We should do it like this. Everyone connect onto this layer and then it solves all the problems. That's a big, there's no one that was looking for that because they get, they get their data, they're always driven a car, right? And they're saying, we've always had a car that looks like a car. And you're like, hey, let's move to a truck because you're trying to move 10 tons of bricks. You need a truck. Right. And they're like, can you just, yeah, but cars are what we know how to use. Can you just make it a car that hauls bricks? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's a truck. <laughs> this is what you need now. Right. And so everyone's like, but we already do this kind of, you know what I mean? So uh -huh. it's very, very nuanced and small, different seeming, but the impact to the industry is massive. So were you driving sales for this from the beginning? And what was it like? Or did you build a sales team right off the bat? Um, and, and did you, who did you go to? Did you go to the operators? Did you go to the frat companies? Did you go to everybody? Uh, yeah, I drove sales for a long time. Um, that's my main thing. You probably tell them full of shit. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm good at. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a lead sales for a long time and yeah, I, was, I started with oil companies because it's their pads. They got to decide that they want change and I had to evangelize essentially. We still do a lot of evangelizing today. I call it because you're going in and you're saying, Hey, we know you have solutions all over the place. Uh, there's one solution that's a new method that's better. Um, and for all these reasons, and it actually is better for everyone because everyone can use this infrastructure to advance in automation and efficiency. So that's how it all kind of went down. But I mean, I remember very clearly still, I showed up on a plane from Canada. I had my little briefcase full of fake papers and I just went through my phone and looked up oil companies in Houston and then went in and started booking meetings on emails and asking them and telling them. And I started pitching something. I was pitching SmartPad, the idea of connecting everything while I had won a pitch competition at a university in Calgary. I'd won 25 grand with a marketing agency that said, Hey, you can spend it however you want. And I said, can you build me some software? Like a, it was basically a web page. And I, that was SmartPad, developed by a marketing agency with no actual developers. That was a web page that looked like software that I was selling to oil companies. And that's how we got our first client. And then just like been fumbling around in the dark until now we have 30 developers and 50 million in software built and multinationals invested and all this stuff now. And we're still like, it's still, I'd say it's as much of a struggle because it just, it's such a big undertaking. You just you just get more and more people being involved and eventually it'll just exist. I love that you sold the product. You, you sold the product before you built it. That's amazing. That, that's a fantastic way to start. Uh, I had to have some revenue, right? Cause it's like, this is so expensive right. to put to like word. Imagine you're us with like five people and I'm trying to put enterprise communication in for Conoco right. or Chevron or Shell. Like, how you can't raise enough money to do that. You have to raise millions plus start generating revenue daily at a pretty high rate. 
Right, right. Oh, it's brilliant. Brett, I want to, I think we could keep riffing on, on all of this. I think it's been a great conversation, but I do want to kind of, to wrap up and I want to, I want to ask you, I think we've touched on this a little bit in different ways, but I want to know what success looks like for you, what it'll look like for cold bore. And then also like personally, you know, for yourself, what, what you say success will look like. That's, I like that question. Um, success for me, as I get through this is going to be balance. Uh, I have got too wrapped up in this and, uh, I big, always wanted a family, always wanted all these things. I don't have that right now. Cause I've been 20 hour days for the last 10 years. Right. And so I'm learning through all this coaching. When I started, I wanted to make a billion dollar company. I'm not going to lie. And I was like, and I want to be worth a ton of money cause I want freedom. Uh, so I was money motivated and you know, you're just young and you don't know any better. Now you've been humbled so many times and you've been through it so for so long that you realize that money isn't, it's not the ticket. It's great. It'll still be an awesome tool to have freedom. But a win at the end of this is if my employees all look at me and truly think that I was a servant leader and they're like, that guy really helped me in my life progress in my career. I really enjoy working for him. Uh, uh, you know, the whole thing we did was a real adventure and that was fun. You know, people talk about great tech companies, they wrote it up. I don't want people to go, that guy drove me to the ground like an oil rigger would and was trying to make a billion dollars. You know, it was fine. He paid me my paycheck, but that way it was kind of grueling. And that was a path I started on. And so I'm pushing real hard now to be the opposite of that. Mm. Um, we'll make what we make. Uh, I am interested in changing uh, how completions is done because I think there's a much more effective way to do it. And I'd love to help make that change happen. But truthfully, the most important thing right now is that all my people uh, build the lives that they want to build and that this company serves them in constructing their lifestyle and not the other way around. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, that's really cool. So, so, and actually you made me think of, as you're talking about that, you said you've got really wrapped up in this. What, how much do you think of, of cold bore technologies has become a part of your personality? And do you think if there's an exit down the road, a point where you have to step out is that going to be a tough transition um we'll see when we get there um there's definitely part of my identity i would change the word personality for identity and that's yeah. something you have to be really careful of because it it leads to the i had a i had a coach this weekend I had a great weekend in california one of the guys there had won super bowl twice he was in nice. the NFL, super accomplished guy, big, just a monster of a guy. He's a really cool dude. Um, but he said that he's like, I just had a hole in my chest that I couldn't fill. He's like, mm -hmm. I just never felt happy. No fulfillment, no nothing. All the way through college and university to Super Bowl, there's nothing else to do. He made millions of dollars, all this stuff. And it just occurred to me, you know, I was like, that's because I've attached also me. I kind of feel like I'm like, I can't, you know, you grow, you're, I'm still not where I want to be, but it's a, you know, it's a quarter billion dollar company with multinationals and billionaires invested. There's all these things that a kid who never finished grade 12 would, could never dream of being as a, a part of. Right. But I just don't feel any different. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's right. because I've attached so much of my self-worth and identity to making this a success that I haven't focused on the important stuff in life, like be showing up for people and being the best father, son, and husband and all these things. So again, it comes back to that balance. The balance, it's like, yeah. Yeah, you got to be so careful that because if you let your identity become what a company is, of course, that's not fulfilling as a human. Mm, yeah, right, man, that's great advice. That's that's great advice. Great way of thinking about it. 
Okay, so wrapping up, I want to be, you got a couple more minutes? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Okay, so we always end, we always wrap up with kind of a, like a get to know you, like favorite drink, favorite book, and then best advice received. So first one, do you have a favorite drink? Uh, probably an old fashioned. Nice. Yeah, old fashioned. I, mean, I was going to say White Claw, but I can't be that basic. So. <laughs> Are you um are you on the old fashions? Are you like the the strict old fashions where it's just like you know, uh, orange rind? Or are you just like give me whatever it is? You like it sweeter with some orange liqueur in there? Or you want it just bourbon and straight, good yeah. bourbon, orange? Like you can do an old fashioned right. There's almost nothing better. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Great choice. It sounds like I know you've been talking about coaching and being built into. Or I don't know if you're a reader or not, but do you have a favorite book? Business book, uh, Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I think it should be like prerequisite. If you're going to start a business, you must read that book. Um, and I also really like The War of Art. Uh, it's a play on the art of war. Yeah. So it's not Sun Tzu. It's War of Art. Yeah. And it's an amazing book about uh, just about how to get, overcome the fear of starting and overcome that, like to just do and not be worried about perfection. Um, yeah. And it's like a 45 minute read. So it's really, really good. I'm reading the uh, the virtues of war uh, by him right now. It's a Alexander the Great uh, historical fiction. It's fantastic. Um, oh, have not nice. read the War of Art. Need to need to read that one. Um, oh, it's it's so good, dude, and it's really fast. Like you can just bang it out in a night. It's good. I'm gonna have to get that, and I'm gonna put that on the reading list. Okay, and and kind of wrapping up, Brad. Uh, uh, I think you've dropped some some wisdom bombs on here, but. Uh, you know, you've kind of dropped some, some advice for those listening, but what's the best advice you ever received? Mm. Uh, one thing that stands out is, uh, is when I first started from my uncle Cam, uh, I was telling him all the things I wanted to do and dreams I had and all this stuff. And because I was choosing that I wanted to build a billion dollar company and not go the cash flow route. Um, he said, it doesn't matter if you want, and he, funny that he said this, because I remember he said it verbatim, but then we ended up doing it. It doesn't matter if you want to fly rockets or build rockets to fly to the moon or make wooden spoons. If you don't know how to finance your business to do either, you will do neither or you might lose both. And I was like, ah, it's that important. Like that important if you're gonna scale. Yeah. Now, if you're just doing cash flow, not that, no big deal. You just got to get a good accountant, manage your books. If you're going to scale fast and go big, you got to understand strategic finance and the banking and the financial markets because it is full of people that are going to trip you up on purpose, give you death spiral financing, take your company, term sheets will be messed up. It's just as important as the company. So that identify which one you want to do, cash flow or scale. And then if you're going scale, stop and get a financial education or a partner that understands it. That's my advice. That's, that's great. Well, Brett Chell with Coldboard Technologies. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think everyone else will when they listen to this too. Thanks very much for being on Energy Builders today. Me too, buddy. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please do us a big favor and leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to or share with someone you think might enjoy this content. Thanks a lot for listening to Energy Builders. Energy Builders.